So, what kind of Christian are you? According to a pastor, Tim Keller, there are three kinds of Christians when it comes to our relationship with the world around us. Private Christians, protected Christians, and public Christians. Private Christians are people who are actively engaged in the world around them, have lots of meaningful relationships, but rarely, if ever, express their faith openly. Now, they may have a very vibrant faith, they just kind of keep it to themselves. Protected Christians, on the other hand, are more open and expressive about their faith, but they hardly ever get outside the Christian community. They do most of their living and relating inside a sort of Christian bubble. Public Christians are those who are open and expressive about their faith and actively engaged in the world around them in terms of work and relationships. They're very comfortable living out their faith in sacred or secular settings. So what kind of Christian are you? Private, protected, or public? It turns out, apparently, an awful lot of us are of the private or protected variety. I don't know if you saw the recent uh, survey released by the Pew Research Center on Religion in America. And this new survey reveals that fewer Americans than ever actually know an evangelical Christian. Now, I realize that term evangelical has accumulated a lot of baggage over the years, some unfortunate baggage, and some of us are not always comfortable using that expression, but evangelical at its best simply describes a person who professes faith in Christ that affects every part of their lives and that they want to share with the world around them. And according to this Pew Center survey, in the past three years, the percentage of Americans who know a so-called evangelical Christian has decreased by nine percentage points, down to about 60% of the American people. Now, that was the most significant decrease in familiarity of any religious group in the country. Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, all of them became more familiar except for Christian people. And when you focus on the millennial generation, fewer than half claim to even know someone who professes to that kind of faith in Christ. Now, that's not really very good news. The news actually is going to get worse before it gets better, but I'll tell you about that later, okay? <laughs> I bring all this up this morning because... Our theme for this week is evangelism. We are in week five of our church-wide discipleship experience that we're calling the Roots Challenge. So far in our journey, we have talked about our new identity in Christ. We've learned to encounter God through prayer and Bible reading. We've talked about surrendering every part of our lives to the leadership of Christ. And last week, we talked about the pursuit of holiness. Now, if the word holiness made you uncomfortable, as Pastor Tim suggested last week, then the word evangelism is likely to induce full-blown panic attack. Because <laughs> evangelism is all about sharing our faith with others. That word evangelism comes from a Greek word that talks about good news. So evangelism is simply good newsing. But that makes many of us uncomfortable brings to mind all kinds of awkward moments and difficult scenarios. And that's true whether you're on the sharing or the receiving side of those conversations. So that probably explains why so many of us are either private or protected Christians. 
Now, in my lifetime, I have lived through a variety of strategies that the church and Christian people have adopted to try to go about this task of sharing our faith with the world. First, there was crusade evangelism. And this was where a gifted evangelist would come and hold a great rally at a stadium or an auditorium or a church. People would be invited to come and he would make a presentation of the, of the gospel message and then invite people to come forward and receive Christ as their savior. Now, Billy Graham, of course, is the most famous and most effective of all those evangelists. But crusades like that happened on all kinds of scales all across the country in the 50s and 60s. And it was, the, it was the, the evangelist's job to present the message, to do the talking. It was the Christian's job to pray for and invite their seeking friends. Many people came to Christ. Many churches were established through crusade evangelism. But over time, that gave way to uh, what I'm going to call door-to-door evangelism. In this approach, the presentation was taken out of the hands of the professional evangelist and put in the hands of ordinary Christian people who were trained to literally knock on doors and invite themselves in for a conversation. And that conversation would inevitably lead to the diagnostic question. If you were to die tonight, do you know you would go to heaven? Yikes. That scenario sounds pretty uncomfortable to us today, but it was actually remarkably effective and even well-received for a lot of years. Many people came to faith because someone came knocking on their door. But eventually, that kind of confrontational approach gave way to what I'm going to call friendship evangelism or lifestyle evangelism. This was a softer, gentler kind of an approach in which Christian people were trained to simply build relationships with people in their lives. But we were also trained how to steer a conversation towards a spiritual topic or how to leverage a friendship into an invitation to church. Here at Grace, for many years, we taught a course called How to Become a Contagious Christian. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of these approaches to sharing our faith. They were all culturally appropriate for their moment in time. They were well-received and very effective. Many of us came to faith in Christ by one of those means, or we know people who came to faith in Christ that way. But the world has changed. American culture has changed. People are more suspicious and private than ever. Church and religion are not a top priority for most people. Pushing your faith on another person is considered politically incorrect, culturally insensitive. It can get you fired if you try it on the job. Some, a mom told me on the way out this morning about her kindergartner who got in trouble for saying she believed in God in her classroom. And even if we could muster up the courage or the nerve to ask someone if they would go to heaven if they were to die tonight, chances are they'd say, sure, or I don't even believe in heaven. Either way, the conversation would be over and maybe the friendship too. We can't just give up. I mean, we believe that the gospel is good news for, for every human being. There's not a person on the planet whose life would not be made richer, more beautiful, more meaningful if they were to discover a relationship with Christ. And then they get heaven on top of that. We want everyone we know and everybody we don't know to discover life with God for this life and the life to come. So how do we share our faith 
in a way that's authentic and gracious and appropriate to the times in which we live? What does it look like to be a public Christian today? Well, that's the theme we'll be exploring this week in our, in our readings, in the Roots Workbook, and in our small group conversations. And our purpose here in this message is to set you up for those readings by introducing you to what I believe is kind of a fresh approach to this thing called evangelism. Now, it turns out that one of our pastors has been doing an awful lot of work in this area recently, a lot of reading and research and even teaching. Uh, Pastor Leah Knight-Breton is uh, one of our student ministry pastors in the Lexington campus, and uh, she's been doing some thinking on this subject, especially as it relates to younger generations of Americans. She's actually been teaching on the subject up at Gordon College. So she and I worked together a little bit on this message, so we're going to do a little tag team thing here. You know about tag team wrestling? You've never heard of tag team preaching before, but we're going to give it a try. So would you welcome Pastor Leah, and then I'll come back. I'm glad we're not doing an actual wrestling match, although I have been told I'm pretty scrappy, so. <laughs> well, I wonder if you've ever been on the other side of someone that you sense has an agenda or maybe an ulterior motive. Maybe you've recently found yourself in the market for a new, or worse, used car, and you find yourself in conversation with the salesman. He's showing you this car and that car, and he's telling you all about the great specs and financing offers. And there's this thing happening inside of you, radaring, be cautious. You know that they aren't actually interested ultimately in you. Their chief interest is closing the deal. So maybe you shoot your wife or friend the look, you know the look, like, we need to get out of here. Or maybe you found yourself in conversation with someone recently that you haven't talked to in a while. You think, wow, how nice of them to reach out. So good to talk to them. And then, <clears throat> all of a sudden, you hear it coming. The reason they tracked you down, the ask, the pitch, the favor. Sometimes it's as obvious as a neon sign, and other times it's more subtle. But the problem all boils down to one thing. Everyone seems to have an agenda. And you know who is right up there with people who are most known to have an agenda? Christians. Ask people what they think of Christians. Loving, accepting, hopeful, generous. I'm not sure those words are at the top of their list. Hypocritical, judgmental, manipulative, closed-minded. It's probably more like it. And this is not news for us. And if we're honest, it isn't always wrong. The church has made serious missteps throughout history. Think campaigns aimed to Christianize people or people groups, which often collapses into colonialism. The problem, of course, isn't just that there's an agenda, but an abuse of power. The one in power essentially says, you should become like me. In many ways, attempts to evangelize have this underlying assumption, I am in the know, you are not. God is here, not there. More contemporary evangelistic techniques have echoed some of these um, mistakes, I think, of the past. At times, we've been the bullhorn exclaimer on the street, obnoxious, loud, one-way communication. Other times, we've been the culture warrior, finger-wagging, battling over behavior. Or as Pastor Tim shared last week, 
Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, the holier-than-thou attitude. Any chance they get to, t to tell the truth, to speak the truth, right? All this to share with you my perspective, and a, a perspective I'm suspecting is shared by those perhaps of my generation and likely others. Evangelism is an unsettling word and concept today. It was in high school when I first became a Christian. And early on, I learned the importance of sharing my faith. Translation, I need to tell people around me what they need to know about Jesus. So I bring up Jesus every chance I get, particularly with those closest to me. And unfortunately, the person on the receiving end oftentimes was my mom. So I think she needs to know the truth. I point out things I don't agree with and good decisions I make over and against my friends and family. You can imagine as a teenager, this did not go over very well. So teenagers, I don't recommend this strategy. Well, since then, I have repented of my ways, um, all is well. But the truth is, I think inserting my two cents about what I think Jesus would think or do was more about me relieving my guilty conscience of not fulfilling the call to share the good news than it was actually about good newsing. And to be honest, I became frustrated and disillusioned with this religion that I felt had encouraged me to do this. Here I was burning bridges with some of the most important relationships in my life. Why? Because all of a sudden there was an agenda that was getting in the middle of our relationship. And that's a problem. Assistant Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther College, Andy Root, says this. In true relationships, the only point is to be together. Once there's another point, the relationship withers under the heat of expectations and obligations. No wonder I experienced such strain back then between my mom and I. I think now, more than ever, we need to reimagine what it looks like for the Christian to engage in the world around us. And sometimes I think the biggest hurdle to gaining new insights or new skills is to unlearn previous methods and practices that have been thought to be tried and true. One theologian points out, every generation in every culture must take up the hard work of discerning the opportunities for and the obstacles to embodying the gospel faithfully in that place. If we're honest, I think for many of us, that idea is a little scary because it suggests that we may not know what God is doing, or worse, we may not know what we're doing, and that is an uncomfortable feeling. But I wonder if that's the point. God, what are we to be about? To ask that question afresh. How much more room would we give the Spirit to move amongst us? And isn't that all what we're longing for? So let's get a few things straight. What is it exactly that needs adapting or shifting or maybe even abandoning? And what is it about evangelism that we need to hold on to? Missiologist David Bosch gives us a good starting place. He defines evangelism this way. He says, evangelism is that dimension and activity of the church mission which seeks to offer every person everywhere a valid opportunity to be directly challenged by the gospel of explicit faith in Jesus Christ 
with a view of embracing him as savior, becoming a living member of his community, and being enlisted in his service for, of reconciliation, peace, and justice on earth. In other words, evangelism is still the core, the heart, the center of the Christian life and mission. We want every person everywhere to hear the good news of God's love, of forgiveness, of mission, of the kingdom of God being realized here in this life and in the next. But the how, I think, needs to be re-examined. Is evangelism just telling people what they need to know, or is it something else? I've recently discovered some insights in, the, in a passage from Luke 10. So the author, Luke, is writing in 70 AD. So this is about 40 years after Jesus' life and ministry. And he's writing to a group of Christians whose assumptions about God and the work of the church are being completely turned upside down. It's at this very time that their holy city, Jerusalem, is besieged and conquered. And their temple at the time, which is about 600 years old, has been destroyed. So at the time, God was thought to be in the temple and in Jerusalem. So this is no small loss. Imagine what's going on for these first century Christians. Surely they are asking in a fresh and likely desperate way, God, what are you doing? What is the church to be about? Sounds kind of familiar. Here's what Luke records in Luke 10, one through nine. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they are not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you, heal the sick, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. So there's a lot in this passage we can unpack, but I want us to hear a few things this morning. First, how do we live out sharing the good news of the gospel? We become the stranger. I hear a call for the disciples to get outside their worlds. How can they know what God is doing in the world if they stay within the walls of the church? I hear an invitation to us, like the early disciples, to go into the neighborhoods and the communities where we live and work, to listen in on the stories and the narratives that give us clues into what God is up to amongst us, to become ourselves recipient of hospitality of others. And what do we do? We extend peace and mercy and grace freely, generously, without anxiety or guilt. We listen. We ask questions, we ask more questions. We become the stranger. Second, God is the initiator. God is the subject and the source of activity. Do you notice this call to leave behind the baggage, AKA agendas? 
I think one of the greatest pieces of baggage that we need to leave behind today is this question. It's a very important question. Hold on, let me just get it here. <laughs> it's this question. How do we get people to come to our church and believe what we do? I think that's a piece of baggage we need to let go of. Remember, Luke is speaking to a group of Christians whose church had recently been destroyed. Is his message to this group of Christians to rebuild their church and to go about getting people to come? The message is to go out with the expectation that God is at work in our world. And we are invited to join in, listen in, lean in, as we embody the good news in the world. The Lord is in charge of the harvest. We are to be about listening, joining the redemptive activity of God, because God is the initiator. Third, evangelism, therefore, is invitation. We are not given a method of evangelism. We are given a spirit. And how do we discern the movement of the spirit? Openness, attentiveness, prayerfulness. Nothing about control or coaxing or threat. And do you notice that the proclamation of the good news is the very last thing that Jesus mentions? The good news is communicated with so much more than words. And when we speak of the good news, we do so in the context of a relationship and in the context of being a learner. Verse eight and nine, if you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick, tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. The disciples have been welcomed. They're sharing meals, they're sharing hurts because we, there's healing that's going on. It's from a place of understanding of the other and discerning an invitation from the Spirit that the disciples then speak the good news. So as we go, we depend on God rather than our own assessment of the needs, which conveniently put us back in control of relationships and agendas. J.R. Woodward, who's a scholar on evangelism and mission, he says this, I love this. Instead of leading from over, we lead from among. Instead of leading from certainty, we lead by exploration, cooperation, and faith. Instead of leading from power, we lead in emptiness, depending on God. Instead of leading from a plan, we lead with attention. Instead of leading as managers, we lead as mystics and poets, speaking poetry into a prose-flattened world and articulating a common future. Instead of leading compulsively, we lead with inner freedom. Instead of leading from the center, we lead from the margins. I love how the Episcopal Church has recently reimagined their mission together as a people. And it's based in this Luke 10 passage. It's this, follow Jesus together, into the neighborhoods, travel lightly. That's their mission. That's what they're doing together as a church. So what does it mean for us to be the local church today? I think Luke is inviting us to consider this, to go out into our neighborhoods and communities, to enter lives, to listen in on conversations, to ask another question, to offer grace, to give up power, ask another question, become the stranger as we leave what is known, and recognize that God is already doing something and wait for an invitation from the Spirit. 
This, I believe, is the starting place for embodying and proclaiming the good news. Well, Pastor Brian's gonna come back up and share with us a little bit more about what this looks like today. Well, thank you, Leah. Leah and some of the thinkers she shared with us are offering us this fresh take on this thing called evangelism, and it's grounded in relationship, real relationship with people as they are, not as we want them to be. It's about getting out of the church and getting out of the bubble and into the activity of our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our communities. It's about letting other people set the agenda instead of us always driving the agenda. It's not about making something happen or forcing a conversation. It's about responding to what's already happening, where God's already at work, and the conversations that are already happening. And after we've done those things, after we've enjoyed the relationship and we've had some common experiences and we've listened to people's hearts and we've connected in meaningful ways and we've responded to needs, then we just may have an opportunity to actually share this good news that the kingdom of God is near you now. It's available to you. That's good news. So we might sum it up this way. It seems we need to be good news before we bring good news. That we need to be the kind of people who bring peace and grace and mercy and joy and beauty into every arena of our lives and every relationship. And as we bring it, as we, as we are that good news, then we're able to share with people what it's all about. And so maybe it's not such a fresh approach after all, as we just discovered from Luke chapter 10. Maybe it's as old as Jesus himself. But I think it's an approach that we need now more than ever. I told you there was more bad news coming out of that Pew Center research study. The first bit of bad news is that fewer people than ever actually know a Christ-following person. The second piece of bad news is that Americans' perceptions of Christian people are on the decline, are at an all-time low. It turns out that in the past few years, nearly every religious group has developed a better reputation among the American people. Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, Mormons, not Christians, Mormons, uh, atheists, everybody has a more positive rating from people in our country except for Christian people. Christians have kind of held steady at their favorability rating, and it's not all that good, actually. Less than a third of non-evangelical people think positively about those who profess faith in Christ in the way we've been describing today. Think about that. Two out of every three Americans don't think positively about those who profess faith in Christ. And before we start feeling too sorry for ourselves, let's remember that the early Christians faced a very similar situation. Let me take you to a passage from, from 1 Peter. It was addressed to Christian people who had been scattered all around the Roman Empire. They found themselves now living in a pagan land. They were far from home. They were outsiders to the community. Now remember, Peter was there back in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus gave those instructions that Leah just read for us. Peter heard those instructions about going to towns and villages. Some 30 years later, he reinterprets those instructions for this new generation of Christ followers. Listen to what he writes. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and aliens 
to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Did you hear how he describes these Christian people? Strangers and aliens. That's you. <laughs> Strangers and aliens. That's the word Leah just used a moment ago about becoming the stranger. See, these Christians, as I said, were far from home. They'd, they'd been, had to leave behind Jerusalem and Judea. Now they're living in a land that's pagan, that's neither Jew nor Gentile. They're polytheistic. It's a Roman empire they're living in. They are outsiders. They have no social status. They have no political clout. They have no relational network in these cities. And on top of that, they're viewed with suspicion because they're followers of this Jesus cult. I hear their leader was crucified. I hear their leader was crucified for treason. Is it true they drink blood in their meetings? <laughs> if you invite them to your house, they won't eat meat offered to idols. There was all kinds of rumor and suspicion and slander spoken about Christian people in those days. They would have ranked even lower on the favorability scale than contemporary Christians would have. So, so what does Peter instruct them to do? Go door to door and scare people into the kingdom? Stand up on a street corner and tell people to repent? No, what he says is, live such good lives among the people. That word good could actually be translated beautiful or excellent. Live such beautiful lives among the people that they can't help but notice something different about you, something attractive about you, something compelling about you. And that goodness, that, that excellence, that, that beauty ought to be so public that people can't miss it and so Christ-like that it points them towards God. In other words, the quality of our lives, the excellence with which we do our jobs every day, the beauty of the way we love the members of our family, the contribution we make to the communities in which we live, the compassion we show to those in need, the concern we have for justice in the world, the joy we find in everyday life ought to be so striking and distinctive that, that it reminds people, it gives them a glimpse into the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And when we do that, when we live and love and work and play that way, it's only a matter of time before people will ask us why. Why are we the way we are? Why do we live and love and work and play and serve like that? And then we get to tell them. It's good news. It's, 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 in, it's about Jesus. The kingdom of God is near you now. You can have this life too. That's good news. And Peter speaks to that later on in his letter. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed of their slander. Notice once again where the initiative is with. Initiative is. It's with, it's with the other person. Let them ask the question. Our only agenda as we make our way through every day is to love God and our neighbors with our heart and soul and mind and strength. That's it, that's the agenda. To be more and more like Christ in the way we live, work, play, love, serve. 
And if we do that, we won't even have to start conversations. They'll come to us. So maybe I'll frame it this way. We share our faith best when we let our lives start the conversation. We share our faith best when we let our lives start the conversation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should never take initiative or whether we should never start a conversation. I'm simply saying that the initiative we take is simply to love people. And the conversations ought to flow naturally out of the experiences we're already having. So I'm going to offer a new a name for this not-so-new approach to evangelism. I'm going to call it whole life evangelism. There's a double meaning to that. It means, first of all, that our lives need to be whole and holy, beautiful and distinctive and Christ-like so that they capture people's attention. And then we offer people our whole lives, every part of our lives. Evangelism isn't a skill we learn. It's not a category of our lives. It's everything about our lives. It's not what we do. It's who we are. It's living our lives among the people in public so people can see it, see a glimpse of the kingdom. There is one bit of good news in all of this, this Pew Center survey. The bad news is that fewer people than ever actually know a Christian person and that uh, people's view towards Christian people is not getting any better. But here's the day, here's the thing. When a person does get to know an actual Christ follower, their feelings toward Christian people increase dramatically by 12 percentage points just for knowing one Christian person. Sounds like the world needs some more public Christians. Lee was poking fun at car salesmen a few moments ago. Actually passed a billboard out on Route 93 just a couple days ago from a local car dealership you would all know and recognize. And it said, it's not about closing the deal. It's about starting a relationship. Now, if a car dealership can get it right, (laughs) I think the church can too. Let's be good news before we bring good news. Now... Well, there's obviously a lot more, lot more we could uh, say here, but you're going to be having an opportunity to read and talk about that in your readings this week. We're going to learn about prayer because certainly prayer is about paying attention. We're going to learn about the different styles of sharing our faith so that we can all be true to who we really are. We're going to be uh, learning about how to tell our story so we're ready when someone asks us. But, but let's just be careful of one thing. Let's remember that Jesus gave us not a method of evangelism, but a spirit of evangelism. So let's not turn our prayer list into a hit list. And let's not reduce evangelism to an interpersonal skill or to a canned presentation. Let's just go out there and live our lives with such beauty that at any moment we could turn to the people we're with and say, this fun we're having, this beauty we're seeing, this connection we're feeling, this truth we're discussing, this service we're offering, this is the kingdom of God, and it's near you now. All you need to do is receive it. That's good news. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to this important but challenging dimension of our faith. 
I'm sure right now many of us are thinking of people we know who we would love to discover life with God. I pray that you might help us to become the kind of people whose lives so resemble Jesus Christ, who are so characterized by beauty and grace and love that people who know us get a glimpse into the kingdom of God. And when they ask us, Lord, let us be ready to share freely our love for you and our gratitude for what you've done. We pray that we truly might be your people as we go out to bring good news to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.